Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Leslie Block and Zoe Bisbing, both New York City based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two. Here to help you help your children fully bloom. This episode of the Full Bloom Podcast is brought to you by our Body Positive Parenting Primer, which is available for purchase on our website. The Primer is a virtual seminar that you can watch or listen to like a podcast. You'll learn the five fundamentals to truly transform your home environment and set your kids up for body positivity fast. Get the primer at fullbloomproject.com slash course. That's fullbloomproject.com slash course. And a quick reminder before we get started that this podcast is for general information and educational purposes only and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional. So welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast. This is episode number 36. Leslie, I'm so excited about today's guest. As a mother of two boys, I grabbed Dr. Michael Reichart's new book, How to Raise a Boy, the second I heard about it and was so excited when he agreed to come on the show. Yes, Michael's a psychologist. He's worked in many different settings, clinical, school, community, researcher, over his career. And he just, we just had such an interesting conversation with him. So interesting, so full of research and just like life wisdom and such sensitivity for the unique vulnerabilities of our little boys. And I just thought he was a, like a perfect guest. Yeah, I think we realized together that there has just been an absence of talking about boys as much as they're in our lives and have a relationship to body positivity just like girls do. And a lot of the research skews towards girls, a lot of things are that we've been talking about have just been, we've been more naturally able to talk about girls, but boys are there too, and mm-hmm. it impacts them. And we wanted to talk about everything to do with how to raise a boy with Michael, which we did. That's and right. The unique challenges and reimagining the possibilities for parents to raise self-aware, caring, emotionally open young men, which is 100% my goal. Michael, welcome to the Full Bloom Project. Glad to be with you, Zoe and Leslie, and uh, also with your listeners. So we are so happy to have you on today talking to us for this conversation, but let's just, you know, hear from you. We'd love to hear who you are, what led you to the work that you do with boys and young men. Uh, Yeah, I appreciate the question. I'm a developmental psychologist who has had a long career. I began my work uh, with boys actually in a juvenile justice setting uh, at the uh, ripe age of 23 years old and have evolved. And it really has been an evolution through working in schools, having a clinical practice, uh, conducting research, including global research, writing and uh, advocating for boys, consulting still today after 25 years to a boys school outside of Philadelphia. So I I feel like in these kind of converging ways, including very personally 
having two sons and now having a grandson, I feel like in these converging ways, I've had boys on my radar clinically, developmentally, theoretically, for, you know, for most of my career. And uh, it's really that body of work and the urgency of the time that pressed me to write this recent book. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm, I'm a mother of two boys myself, so selfishly I have so many questions for you today, especially about what boys are learning uh, in 2019, about what it means to be a man. But before we get into sort of their general emotional worlds, you know, of course, we are a body positive parenting podcast and appreciated that you do dedicate a nice chunk in your book to boys and bodies. And I, I, I think we'd love to just start by hearing a little bit more from you about how boys do learn to relate to their bodies, what you've learned and what they're faced with, what unique challenges they're faced with. Yeah, I think that's a great starting point because I think it's, it's correct to say that gender is a body practice. You know, we, 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 we greet these children's bodies uh, upon their birth, sometimes even before, with all kinds of projections about what we think that particular body means. And we begin to socialize these young people into a set of ideas, a set of myths, a set of stereotypes that really influence their developmental trajectories. We're more familiar with how uh, those kinds of projections and stereotypes affect girls' bodies, the sexual objectification of girls in particular. Um, But we're less familiar with boys, though that's changing. You know, one of the things I talk about in my book is the research about the phenomenon of body dysmorphia, the way that boys receive messages that there's this standard uh, that they should strive to achieve. And it's an impossible standard and yet the impact is, you know, what, what one clinician calls an Adonis complex. Boys that don't have, you know, the six-pack abs and the lean muscular physiques, you know, the, the surfer dude uh, uh, or lax bro, uh, you know, uh, persona, um, that they don't measure up. And, and we have, I think, culturally, even as these, you know, gender norms are being shaken and challenged, we find, for example, in the toy and video game and media industries that we are portraying males in more rigidly stereotypic ways along the lines of this Adonis uh, image than ever before. G.I. Joe has added 20% of muscle mass, those kinds of things. So, you know, our boys are being assailed with these projections, these ideas, And unfortunately, they're very vulnerable to uh, what we call the looking glass that they see, you know, they see themselves reflected in. You know, I I think that that, uh, whether it's their bodies or, you know, their bodies alone or how they're they're told to use their bodies in contexts like sports, you know, play through pain and, uh, you know, sacrifice yourself for the team. You know, this idea that the body is an instrument to be uh, used is the message that boys get. And unfortunately, it has rather, rather terrible 
consequences for how boys take care of their bodies. You know, the, the 15 leading causes of, of premature mortality are dominated by males. You know, many of those casualties, many of those injuries are caused by avoidable situations, overly uh, uh, bold or, or thoughtless risk-taking, you know, riding in cars without seatbelts or riding under the influence, mm-hmm. unprotected sex, you know, as simple and stupid as not wearing sunscreen, you know, mm-hmm. as a way of demonstrating your macho, uh, you know, capabilities. It's so, I just wanted to interrupt because it's so interesting when you, you know, use that word, boys are taught to treat their bodies as instruments. And and that exact phrase came up last season when we interviewed Renee Engel and we talked to her about her book, Beauty Sickness. And we talked about how that can in some ways be protective in that boys are taught your body's an instrument, girls are taught your body's an ornament. <laughs> and yet, I think this conversation we're having is so important because it talks about maybe the unintended consequences of looking at it that way. It's the other side of the coin from last season. I just wanted to make the connection for listeners. Yeah, just, you know, I I think really speaking to the consequences of this, because I think it's so normalized for most people. I'm thinking about parents responding, some parents responding well-meaningly with like, well, what's so wrong? What's wrong with that? You know, like mm-hmm. that's kind of been, you know, what are, what are the consequences of this really? Are there any? And I think to hear them connected to what you just said, which was the consequences are what causes us to prematurely die, mm-hmm. um, or men, you know, that these are related, they're correlated, is pretty important to mm-hmm. hear. Yeah, and if I could even elaborate one step further, yeah, there's these physical consequences, these consequences that impact physical well-being and health. But as a psychologist, I'm, I'm really struck by the psychological consequences that we, we essentially teach our boys to compromise their integrity. You know, the most basic, the most uh, hardwired instinct for a human being is self-preservation to take care of ourselves. Yeah. And if the message that we're sending to boys is don't prioritize taking care of yourself, prioritize these cultural standards, these cultural necessities, we are undermining, we're eroding their commitment to integrity. And we see that play out down the road as boys grow and make subsequent compromises as well. You know, that very, very basic commitment to integrity is already under threat um, as boys receive these messages about jumping off things or climbing things or riding their bikes in certain ways or driving cars in certain ways, you know, all to demonstrate their, their bravery and their um, carefree, you know, unconstrained sort of natures. Yeah, that we we wanted to ask you about what boys really are learning in this day and age in 2019, almost 2020, about what it means to be a man. We'd really love if you can talk about specific research on what you're talking about, conformity and pressures faced by boys to fit in the kind of man box. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. There's been a, a, a real revolution in the field that we call boyhood studies over the last 20 years. And a couple of uh, uh, research 
projects that, that I'd like to mention are, are, are worth uh, digging into. The first is a, a study that was conducted by a Stanford psychologist, Judy Chu, as part of her doctoral study at Harvard under Carol Gilligan. She essentially embedded herself with a small group of, of four-year-old boys and followed them for two years from age four to age six. And what she says about these boys, you know, as she, after interviewing them and observing them, she went once a week to observe them and talk with them and talk with their teachers and talk with their parents. And what she observed at four baseline of her study was that they were very direct, that they were authentic, that they were fully capable of connecting and being themselves. And that over the course of the two years, as they absorbed the norms of masculinity, you know, as they were essentially being told how they should be as males, and the messages they were receiving were from everywhere, their peer group, their parents, their teachers, girls in the class, everywhere, TV, media, etc. As they absorbed these, these messages, they changed, Judy wrote. She said they traveled from presence, being themselves, to pretense, playing the part, by way of posturing. They learned to go behind a mask and play the part of the boy that they were supposed to be. And they became less authentic, less direct, as they overcompromised in this direction. They lost a certain zip. They became less exuberant and less happy as these messages impacted, boxed them in to a more narrow and less organic way of being. So the way that they walk and talk and the way they dress and play, the toys they play with, who they play with, all of these features of childhood were influenced and directed by uh, these masculine norms. So fast forward from age six, another study conducted with about 1,500 young men in three different countries, ages 18 to 29, conducted by Promundo, which is a, a global leader in uh, working with men and boys on gender equality issues all around the world. They did this study that they called the Man Box Study, which essentially asked uh, these three groups of young men in these, in these different countries, do you receive messages that you should man up in particular ways? Three quarters said, yes, we do. When they were asked, where do the messages come from? Uh, in the U.S., uh, 60% said that they receive those messages from their parents. Mm -hmm. um, they certainly receive them in schools. You know, there's this phenomenon educational researchers have called the hidden curriculum, which isn't, isn't you know, written down anywhere. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's, it's as bold as in mission statements and so forth. But it really uh, uh, lives in the hearts and habits and unconscious practices of schools. Children receive messages about gender being dichotomous, you know, there being male and female behaviors. And Barry Thorne wrote this wonderful book, Gender Play. The book is separate but not together, about how, you know, boys and girls group themselves into male and female groups and their whole uh, styles, you know, of being are different, radically different, separated in these camps almost. So, you know, in this man box study, 
the respondents were then asked, okay, you're getting these messages about how you're supposed to be. You're getting them from people that are, you know, in your intimate circle. What effect do they have? And what they found was, uh, and, you know, as a psychologist, I was most drawn to the impact of these masculine messages on emotional functioning. And what they found was that the young men that most subscribe to the cultural norms of masculinity are the very ones who are most depressed, most anxious, Mm -hmm. least happy, and most prone to suicidal thoughts. Even, you know, 40% of the sample that that subscribed to the man box norms maintained that they had had suicidal thoughts. So, uh, you know, if it begins, uh, as Judy found, in early childhood, and continues right along through middle school and high school years and still has a hold of young men up to age 30, this masculinizing pressure that's on males to fit themselves into a box and not stray at the risk of being essentially policed, disapproved of, or worse, you know, it's highly consequential. And what I write in the book is that routine losses and casualties are an inconvenient truth about boyhood. You know, it it begins with uh, consequences in the area of health and well-being, as we talked about, but it extends. You know, we've had uh, a a crisis, quote-unquote, in education uh, for the last, you know, 10 years. People have been pointing their fingers and sending out alarms saying, you know, the boys are falling behind. And the whole rash of books, you know, from boys falling behind to the trouble with boys to the end of men um, and, you know, everywhere in between, just dire projections about the consequences of males underachieving in school, you know, not, not buying in and not trying. And the consequences extend beyond educational disinvestment to participation in, in civic society and even participation in relationships. Mm-hmm. The percentage of males that are sort of dropping out or going to the wayside, you know, the, these, these sort of very marginal but significant cultural phenomena like men going their own way or incels. We find that, you know, there's a whole category of males that just don't know how to participate in the current society. Yeah. Um, particularly as the rules have changed so dramatically. I think uh, you are answering this question. You know, as a, as a parent of boys, when I read in the New York Times, <laughs> you said, it's dangerous to be a boy. It's, I definitely stopped and <laughs> took, took a deep <laughs> breath. And you're, you're speaking to it, right? You're speaking to the hazards. And I'm thinking, too, just about how my littlest son just started preschool and I noticed that even since beginning preschool, it's a wonderful preschool, you know, somewhere in the middle, not totally progressive, but, you know, progressive enough for my taste. And, you know, he has. He's already come back kind of with notions that boys like this or girls like this, and they are asking them to sit in like girl boy, girl boy order, which also feels a little gender (laughs) non-inclusive to me. But you know, I do as a parent that has really tried to hopefully do everything you, you say to do <laughs> in my own home and starting to notice, even though he's not quite four, like starting to see him in one of these sort of institutionalized places that you're describing. I do want to know from you, like what we can do, right? Like what you think parents who are listening to this and 
maybe don't think they're part of the 60% that are giving those messages, right? Like, but the boys are kind of bound to get them anyway. I just wonder if you could speak to what <laughs> what is in our control <laughs> for all the anxious yeah, mamas yeah, out yeah. there and, and papas out there. Like, what can we do to sort of prime our boys better? No, that's that's really the reason that I wrote the book. And, you know, I'm very sympathetic to uh, parents of younger boys having been there myself. I'll just tell you my own experience, maybe. Yeah. My wife and I, you know, we were really, really intent on protecting our first son from all kinds of ideas uh, that greeted him as soon as he emerged at birth. You know, not just about his being male, but about his being a person and about his emotions and about, you know, his needs. So we were really intent on essentially circling our wagons as a family and trying to create within our family a force that would that would lift him up and, and protect him. And to our great dismay, it's sort of what you're realizing now, <laughs> what, I see, what I see in my three-year-old grandson is that, is that you really can't uh, uh, create, you can't tuck your son into a lead-lined vault and hope that he, uh, you know, nothing gets through. It, it seeps in everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a real reckoning for me one day to realize that it comes from me as well as educated, as sensitized, and as determined as I was, I found myself one day confronting a behavior in my son that made my spine shiver and elicited from me a reaction that, you know, I I question to this day. You know, this is my older son who's now, you know, a fine vice principal in a boys' high school and, you know, a lovely father to his son. So, you know, he turned out fine. But um, this particular day, I think he was about four years old, and we were living in one of the wonderful row house neighborhoods in Philadelphia. And half a block down from where we lived was a playground, and my son uh, had graduated from riding big toys up and down the street to going down to the playground and trying to, you know, be part of stickball games and so forth. Great fun. And... uh, You know, the boys that he had uh, grown up with and that had been his friends were gathering there, and he would go down. And what began to happen was that the group of boys, I think led by a couple of the older boys, they decided to single him out. I, I think that that happens, you know, just randomly in boys' groups. They decided to single him out and essentially to exclude him, to tell him he couldn't play. My son didn't know how to deal with that and would simply turn around, trudge back up the block, you know, tail between his legs, and come back home. And at first, you know, I tried to, I thought, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to fortify him. I'm going to welcome him home, and, and I'm going to tell him what a great guy he is, and I'll play with him and make sure he's not lonely, you know. But, but one particular Saturday morning, um, I don't know if I was stressed or this had been going on for a while, but uh, I decided that uh, after he went down to the playground one more time, I decided I'd sit out on the front steps and wait for him and see, you know, see how it went. And uh, I saw him coming back. I could tell that it hadn't gone well. 
He came back to the step and I said to him, you can't come in. You have to go back down there and figure this out. I'm happy to, to brainstorm with you about what you might do or, you know, I'm happy even to come down with you if you need me to, though I don't think that will help. But I think you can do it. I think you can, you can stick up for yourself and you can argue with them. And, you know, you want to be there. You want to play stickball with them and there's no good reason that you can't. And, uh, you know, my saying that to him just simply turned on the spigots, you know, and, and he began to melt down with, you know, the shame and the embarrassment and the disappointment that he was feeling. And he, he tried desperately to kind of dodge his way around me and get inside. But I, I, I stopped him. And I was really firm that this simply couldn't be. You know, I couldn't imagine my son's life dominated by a pack of boys that were being mean to him. I was just afraid that, you know, in giving up something he really wanted, that he would shrink his life, his world, and not learn how to fight for himself. Anyway, to make a long story short, <laughs> you know, he had a big kind of meltdown there on the front steps, and, and uh, my neighbors came out worried, you know, that I was doing something terrible. <laughs> and... Uh, my son, I think, eventually did go down again and did figure it out. But I went inside afterwards shaken, like, oh, gosh, had I done the right thing? Or was I simply perpetuating from one generation to the next this idea, you know, that no matter what you're feeling, the priority is on solving the problem and making it work rather than, you know, having the chance to really be with your feelings and have the freedom to decide what you do. Here I was saying, you got to figure this out. You want to be down there. I think that's a good idea. You got to go back. And, you know, I don't think, honestly, that I was being frivolous or stupid, particularly, but I was definitely responding to a fear in me mm -hmm. that I was projecting forward. I knew what boyhood was like, I felt. And I believed it was my job as his father to teach him some things about being a man that perhaps he didn't know or understand fully. Mm -hmm. Like that he had to, well, he didn't say it, but kind of what man up and get back down yeah. there and confront the go boys, fight go fight for yourself. So, yeah. so now, you know, in writing this book and having all these years, these 20 years or more, I'm not sure how old your son is, you know, wh what would you say to a parent? I was just talking to some parents and my daughter is six and, you know, I can definitely see that from four to six, it's changed a lot in her classroom dynamics. And I was speaking with a parent the other day about some dynamics that are happening amongst the boys in her class. And I think this scenario is what's playing out. And I'm just wondering for a, a mom listening who's, or dad, whose child is in the midst of what your son was going through then, what would you say to do? Yeah, so, so I was making the point that we can't circle our wagons, that the messages seep in mm -hmm. and even come from uh, ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, if we can't protect or insulate our children from these uh, gender pressures and stereotypes, mm -hmm. what I think we can do is we can stiffen their resistance 
And that's the strategy I advocate in the book. The subtitle of the book is The Power of Connection mm -hmm. to Build Good Men. And, and it's essentially, you know, it, it really is an optimistic, I hope reassuring message, which is that every child, you know, has this inborn instinct for preserving themselves, for being themselves, for being authentic, for following their own imaginations for who they want to be. And they only submit to cultural messages or norms that take them away from who they are under duress. Their first instinct is to resist those norms. So we don't have to do it for them is the message. What we can do, our job in some ways, is to get behind them and be the uh, containers, the relational anchors that help them hold on to themselves And, you know, bottom line, the way we help our children hold on to themselves is to hold on to them ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I recommend these three strategies in the book, and they're all essentially strategies that help a boy really feel known and loved, backed, believed in, and supported, helped to process in particular the stress, the hurt, the pressure that comes at him to force him off of his square. And, you know, the, the, the more relationship the boy has, the more of a sense he has of what psychologists call a secure base, the stronger attachment he has, the more likely he is to have a core sense of self that is unshakable, no matter what comes at him. Yeah. I mean, and I'm thinking too about how I think one of these strategies you write about is deep listening, right? And even your story from long ago and your son was a, a boy, regardless of what was going on and what you were projecting, part of your story is that you let him cry on the stoop and you let him have his emotional experience. Like you might have at one point then said, okay, you got to go back down now. But I'm thinking about how that's got to be part of this sort of essential ingredient, right? Being able to let your son, and of course today we're speaking more specifically about boys, let him have his emotional experience. And like, would you give yourself credit for that being maybe unintentionally one of these strategies, the deep listening strategy? <laughs> <laughs> Giving you credit, I, I, Michael. <laughs> I would even give myself more credit than that. Good, good, good. <laughs> I would say I was, I was really trying to follow In the book, I talk about a strategy for discipline, mm -hmm. you know, that involves setting a limit, not so much to dominate or uh, enforce conformity on a child, uh, cause him to submit at all, but really to interrupt a behavior that, that, that we've determined isn't working or it doesn't represent who our son really is. Mm -hmm. So I was trying essentially to say, putting up a limit, saying it's not okay for you to turn around and, and retreat. You need to go back out there. I'll support you. I'm here for you. I care about you. I know you want to play in the game, and I believe you can do it. That was the essence of my limit. And then what followed, which is always the, the payoff for setting a limit, was this outpouring of the energy, the emotional hurt, that was driving him to retreat, mm -hmm. that was causing him essentially to believe that he wasn't up to it, that he couldn't do it, that it was more than him, more than he could manage. So 
you know, yeah, I did believe that I was helping him to process the hurt, the disappointment, the humiliation, the fear that was welling up and taking over. And I was trying to embolden him by essentially helping him work all of that through so that his mind could reset on, you know, what his goal was. You know, and, and this is so important for the strategy of deep listening as well as the strategy of setting limits. You know, I was coming as much from a place of my own fear as I was acting rationally following this model. And I don't think I realized that then. But it's so important for us when we uh, parent our children, uh, boys, it's so important that we recognize that what they're looking for in us isn't something to be trained or taught to do but a free space, an open space, where we really are the container for what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and that they can find what what Carol Gilligan in voice theory calls resonance, Mm -hmm. that they want to be held, you know, and, and, and they need to experience themselves being understood by someone or they're alone with what they're thinking and feeling. And that kind of alone place is not a great place, particularly if there's emotional upset, because it's essentially an an echo chamber, you know? Mm -hmm. Our fears, our our distorted thinking, it it amplifies in the echo chamber of our own minds and hearts. We need a place to get it off our chest, to dump it out. And that's the role of parents. And we don't do we don't do that with boys. We we believe that they are independent at their heart don't have these relational or emotional needs and we push them out of the nest and and almost communicate to them in in all kinds of ways that we don't really want to hear about their fears or their upsets it's so unintentionally invalidating just because we're all we talk so much about how we're all part of we talk a lot about being a part of diet culture and but we're all part of the general culture and that, you know, we've all been socialized a certain way. And so I, I think it's, it's wonderful for us all to just reflect on what you're saying and be reminded that we have a responsibility to treat all of our children equally, regardless of their sex or gender. Um, before we move on from the strategies, I, I just wondered if you could say a little bit about special time. I really enjoyed reading um, yeah, about yeah. that in your book. And I think our listeners would like to know too. Yeah, so the uh, first strategy, deep listening, is really kind of baseline, figuring out how to still our minds and create that open space so that our sons can actually find their way to, to accessing our minds and our understanding. And it's a, it's a muscle that we have to practice, and it, uh, it's a great skill to develop anyway, and it's so fundamentally uh, important in child development. The next strategy, special time, is, is sort of building off of that and taking it a bit further. So much of what we essentially tell our children is that we want them to fit themselves into our comfort zones, our wheelhouses. The time that we spend with them, the time that we spend paying attention to them, is typically around activities or, or schedules that we set and we set them kind of for our convenience. So special time is about carving out a block of time regularly, ideally, 
each week predictably so our sons can kind of know it's coming and uh, saying to our son, whether by our actions or our words or both, that we're simply going to be with them and we're going to follow their lead and do whatever it is that they like to do. And the validation that comes from that, uh, the message is that you're interesting to me. Whatever's of interest to you is of interest to me. I'm not going to require you to do things that are comfortable to me. I'm willing to put myself out and go wherever your mind is going. So, you know, for mothers, it might be uncomfortable playing with G.I. Joe dolls or soldiers or trucks. But, uh, you know, if that's what the boy wants to do, we're going we're gonna to play with him and we're going to follow his lead. With, for me, as my sons got older, it was video games or throwing <laughs> lacrosse balls in the backyard or kicking soccer balls, you know. None of those activities were ones that I was familiar with. I was bad at all of them. Mm-hmm. And um, that was, you know, particularly delightful to my sons that they were yes. better, than, better than me. <laughs> you know, but- I imagine that, you know, this strategy also can easily be applied to parents of girls. Absolutely. Too. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, and kids beyond the gender binary as well. I, That's right. We try to dedicate some space here at the Full Bloom Project for that experience as well. And thankfully, there's more and more research and, and activists out there. But, uh, but particularly for what your expertise is in and what you write about in your book, in, that it has a great impact on raising a boy. Yeah. Yeah, if the goal is, you know, I think so much of what we tell boys explicitly and implicitly is that uh, we're interested in them only insofar as they perform in ways that we are expecting them to perform. And to actually go with them and be with them wherever they want to go is such a validation of their their existences. And that's really what we want to do. Mm-hmm. So our important question here and regular question to end our interviews is always, what's the one thing? Because we have busy lives um, and are all, most of us are trying as hard as we can. <laughs> um, and we want to give parents something to leave the podcast with that they can say, okay, I'm going to commit to trying this this one week, thing. this one thing. What would you recommend for parents raising boys? What's the one thing to help them fully bloom? Yeah, I love the concept of blooming. In fact, in the book I cite, Alison Gopnik, who talks about the role of parents being more like gardeners than carpenters. So I, I love, your, uh, love your metaphor. And, you know, I, we didn't talk about mothers and fathers, but I, I think this is a particular message to you mothers because you're, you're, you're receiving cultural messages that, you know, you don't really know how to raise a boy to be a man, and it takes a man to raise a boy to be a man, and if mothers keep their sons too close, they risk tainting his masculinity, those kinds of messages. And, mm-hmm. you know, so my message really is that if we want, it's what I said before, if we want our sons to hold on to themselves, and trust me, the selves that they would hold on to are are, are good selves, um, virtuous and respectful and kind and empathic. If we want our sons to hold on to themselves, we have to hold on to them ourselves, mothers as well as fathers. I like that answer. And 
what I like so much about just the general ethos of what you're discussing today, it has a lot to do with trust. Like trust your kid, trust your kid to, you know, the sort of that authentic self that you're describing. We talk a lot about it here with parents that get carried away um, trying to micromanage food and not trusting that their kids will stop when they're full or eat when they're hungry. And I, I think it translates beautifully to what we're discussing today, that trust that your kids have an authentic self that, you know, needs nurturing, not changing or sculpting, but like create an environment where your boy can be who he's going to be and open up your notions to what that looks like. Cause it may not be the sort of typical masculine idea that you had in th- that you were socialized to believe. Yep. I agree. Well, thank you so much. And obviously your book has so many more details that our listeners hopefully will go out and buy and, um, and get more of your expertise into their minds and behaviors yes so thank you so much for your time today and we look forward to hopefully speaking with you again yeah thank you leslie thank you zoe so that's our show we would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode so please feel free to send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. And please consider becoming a patron of our podcast by visiting fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, so that we can continue producing and delivering this content to you. And if you want a copy of Michael's book, How to Raise a Boy, we will likely be doing a giveaway on our Instagram page this week. So if you're not already a follower, go follow us on Instagram at Full Bloom Project and um, you might just get yourself a copy of the book. Yeah, which is me. It's an amazing book. So it's a good enough reason to join Instagram for, I'd say. Thank you all for listening. And remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom. Mm-hmm.